so friends, welcome to the second of 12 inquiries. First time and the last time we spoke, we were talking about our last 15 years on Twitter. I enjoyed the conversation very much. As did I. This conversation is going to be a little bit more personal, and I can imagine it going lots of different ways. Rather than looking at the past 15 years of how we're using a social media platform, we're going to look back at the last 20 years, maybe even more, of how we identify ourselves, how we identify with our gender, how we view masculinity, our relationships to women. I have to admit, I'm a little bit nervous about this conversation. I'm hoping for a lot of generosity and grace from you and our listeners. But I'm also really, it's an important conversation. It's something that you and I have both thought about and talked about over the years. But something I've never asked you before is, how has your relationship to masculinity changed over the past 20 years? And what have been some of the major inflection points for you? I've always been someone who is highly empathic, can be very, I, I suppose, feminine, you know, and, and to from that get go, we were already getting into these really weird labels that we put on emotions and emotions are human. They're not exclusively gendered in any way. And yet in my brain, at least, and I think other people's brains, they tend to be so. I grew up always feeling a little bit more comfortable surrounding myself with uh, female friends. I felt more comfortable confiding in them. I felt more comfortable being me. Uh, I was a drama kid who, you know, thought he was a vampire, but not really, but liked the tropes because he read too much Anne Rice as a teenager. So there were a lot of ways in which I didn't traditionally fit the the broy masculine tropes, and I found refuge uh, surrounded by women. But at the same time, I created a conflict for myself where I, I was friends with a lot of girls. And so when you're friends with a lot of girls as a teenager, but you're also simultaneously trying to hook up, it, you know, it creates a little bit of a dissonance. So I always grew up, I had several inflection points where my relationship with my masculinity was defined by how I felt about my, you know, quote unquote, feminine traits. And there was a lot of back and forth because by nature, I'm a certain way. And as I got into my early 20s and living in New York, college, I found myself artificially adopting things because I felt that they would make me more successful with women or because I was tired of, you know, being put in a friend zone, things like that. I mean, it's a there's a lot to uncover there, but it's changed a tremendous amount over the years and my definition of what it means to be a man at 41 versus what I thought at 21 is, is radically different. I mean, it's almost embarrassing what I thought. No, it is embarrassing. What about you? So I relate so much to what you're saying about this kind of push and pull of, of relating to femininity, surrounding yourself with women. I grew up with a single mom who was a very strong personality. You grew up with a mother with a very strong personality. I think that's something that we both have in common and that that pushed us to have a lot of female friendships in a way growing up. And so I don't know if this is true for you, but I very much felt more comfortable oftentimes surrounded by women. Also wanting to be accepted by the women in my life, both platonically, but also romantically, right? And then also being wanted, wanting to be accepted by men and masculine norms, even though not identifying with a lot of the like broy, violent, aggressive behavior. And so I was constantly going back and forth about 
how do I get women to like me? What do women want? How can I be a man and be perceived as masculine, even though I don't have a lot of those traits and I'm really turned off by a lot of the like classic male behavior. And it's so funny how you were saying that people that I don't know that you I, that you kind of identified as more feminine growing up because especially it happens less to me now I think mostly because I'm married but in my 20s I would get asked so often if I was gay and or my friends you know someone would ask a friend is David straight is he gay and then when I ask like why why do you think that I'm gay the answer that I would get most often is well you just listen so intently or like you're intuitive and the fact that that is seen as not masculine or not heterosexual I think is really interesting. My biggest thing wasn't this like, is he, you know, like, are you heterosexual or not? It was this frustration. And I remember it viscerally right now as I talk about it. It was this frustration which with feeling that if I approached women the way I felt was my nature in a kind of openly, I suppose, platonic approach at first, then it would immediately curtail any possibility of of a romantic relationship and that really did my head in right because i remember being in my 20s and always being a little bit insecure in fact this is a kind of a pretty trip through my life where i would later find find out that someone i found attractive thought i was attractive and i would feel surprised that that person thought i was attractive because i was so used to being viewed platonically. And so this idea of artificially shaping certain behaviors towards women, uh, it, it's crystal clear for me, and I'll go into an example. My first year at NYU, I, I was surrounded by actresses, as you are, and, and part, a big part of it of learning to be an actor is finding scene partners. And, and there's a tendency to go with scene partners of the opposite sex, right? So you pair up with a girl in the back of your head, you're sort of picking one that you're kind of into because you're going to be like, you know, in close contact for, you know, rehearsals and whatnot. And there was this one girl who I was really into and we started doing scene work and practicing together and hanging out and I remember she used to come over to my house all the time and it was a sort of dynamic where like we would watch a movie and she would cuddle but she wasn't like romantically interested in me right it was very platonic and and there were moments where I was like I feel gay I feel like her gay best friend we would watch sex in the city together right and it was doing my head in until and I'm gonna bring it up early in the conversation I watched swingers at the behest of a friend who was like, you need to watch this movie. And I watched it and I realized, huh, I'm, I'm paying too much attention to her. Like that was my, my takeaway. And then I was like, I'm going to do an experiment. So I stopped being as attentive. You know, she would call and I wouldn't answer. She would send me an email and I'd let days go by. And, and it worked. And I was so disappointed that it worked. I can't. I remember she started like looking for me more and I became challenging to her. And though nothing really came of it except maybe a kiss, the fact that it had worked kind of broke my heart because it it meant that something about this culture that I found kind of repulsive, this male bro culture, 
had a basis in some sort of fact, right? And it wasn't until much later as an adult that I realized that it's not just our own masculinity, but also, you know, women's concept of their femininity, it's it's growing in parallel, right? I mean, this conversation about how we try to get attention from women, right, when we were younger, I think has two different paths. One is how were we performing our masculinity for women in order to get romantic and sexual attention from them and not just to be the guy that they cuddle with. And I do want to bookmark a book that I think was certainly influential for some of our friends. I didn't read it personally, but I think a lot of millennials and Gen Z don't know that this book was a thing, the game, right? Which which basically what I what I understand from it is it's kind of telling men to not treat women well and that as a result women will be more attracted to them. And like you said, it worked. And I found that so many of my guy friends in my early to mid 20s also found that it worked. In these conversations about Me Too and the culture change in terms of how we approach masculinity and how we approach gender relations, I'm interested in are women having that conversation? Because I remember a, a coworker that I worked with at a coffee shop. I, you know, I was talking about a couple of women who I was really attracted to that that weren't attracted to me at the time. And she said, this is like, it burned into my memory. The problem is you're a nice guy and those types of women don't like nice guys. And look at the types of guys that they date. And it was so true. You know, they, they came to me to talk about how frustrated they were with men and masculine behavior, but they wanted to be with the, the bad guy, the motorcyclist. I think that brings it back to this point of women go through, as, as, as I understand it, their own process of figuring that out, right? I've met a lot of 30-something-year-olds who are like, I cannot believe I used to be attracted to that, right? So there's something there that they're going through in parallel, right? So it kind of has a lot to do with how these things line up. And one of the things that I took some comfort in after I realized, wow, this works, and I, I was like, I'm not that person. I'm not... You know, I, I remember thinking like, oh, it's a role. And I was at the time I thought I was going to be an actor. So I thought, OK, I'll just play this role. But I didn't like doing it. And eventually I really just stopped and I decided, you know what, maybe that's just not the kind of girl I not even should be dating. Just like maybe that's just not the sort of girl that's compatible with me, because in the long term, it was a facade. It was a facade to gain early attention. Right. But there was also a relationship between my self-confidence and how that created the illusion of confidence, right? The illusion of I, I'm not needy. I don't, I don't want this. I, so it became a shortcut to realizing, okay, it, maybe it's not just about being mean and not a nice guy, but it's also about what happens if you put yourself first? What happens if you're self-confident? What happens if you own who you are? And honestly, that marked a shift in my approach to dating and relationships. That said, when the Me Too thing happened, I found myself evaluating not, I mean, fortunately, I, I never, you know, was abusive towards anyone, but even really simple things. Like I grew up with a father who would be flirty by nature with all women all the time. So when he would greet a woman, he would say, you know, hello, beauty, all the time. And he's very charming. So on the surface, as a kid, adolescent, I thought it was charming too. And women reacted to it 
positively. They, it seemed they thought it was charming. So that's where a lot of this stuff becomes really convoluted. As the Me Too kicked off this push and introspection to go, wait, what am I doing? Or why am I behaving in this way towards women? I would do the same thing. I would, I would flirt with women that I wasn't necessarily that interested in having a relationship because I think that I discovered subconsciously that if there are women who are interested in you, then the women you are interested in are more we'll likely to be interested. Yep. Yeah, yep. it's like when it rains, it pours, and when it's a drought, it's a drought, right? But if there are two or three women who are interested in you, then all of a sudden, all women seem to be interested in you. Completely. It's the whole trope of when, you have, when you're single, there's less attention, and when you have a girlfriend or married, suddenly more women are interested in you. But I wonder... Was I wanting that attention from women to impress my guy friends in my early 20s? I think that was part of the dynamic. And I don't think that men are alone in this. I remember reading a study that was in some magazine article about why women go dance on the dance floor with certain men, including in a way where you don't even know who you're dancing with, right? Like the woman is in front of the guy, the guy's behind her, kind of grinding on her. And she's looking at her friends to see if her friends approve of this like is she gaining social capital with her friends i definitely did that so in high school what happened to me is that when i got to high school i was the new kid right and i was instantly very very popular with all of the girls dated two of them and that pissed off every dude in my first year of high school so i did not have male friends they didn't want to be friends with me because I showed up and like distorted the whatever hierarchy of the dating pool. And that quickly burnt out because novelty wears off. And I ended up becoming friends with a lot of these girls. I still thought that I should be popular. And when that wasn't happening, I got very frustrated by it. And once I stopped being popular, that opened up a few friendships, but they were never very deep friendships. When I got to New York for, I finished high school in New York, I met one of my, my, my buddy, Noah Segan, who's been my friend since 1998. So one of my oldest friends. And the dynamic in New York was just very, very, very different. And my friendships with men to this day have followed a very different pattern. I tend to befriend men who aren't traditionally very kind of bro-y because we tend to bond around other things geekiness, intellectual pursuits. In my 20s, a lot of it was video games and movies. That was a huge part of it. So yes, women were part of that conversation. But for example, I never had like a wingman. I never went to a club to try to pick up a girl with someone. And this had a lot to do also with the fact that by the early 2000s, I was living in New York, broadband, early social network sites like Friendster, uh, which was before MySpace, and even like dating sites. I realized that I had better luck dating online, like doing that first meet through something virtual than trying to walk into a bar and pick up a girl, which was never something I was good at. So because of it, my male friendships didn't revolve around that. And sure, it was a male friend who said, you've got to watch Swingers. And, you know, I remember going to the movies to watch Fight Club and then like walking out of there and wanting to punch each other. So that was a part of it, but it wasn't primary. In fact, a lot of that kind of masculine culture was channeled into into video game playing. So when we were outlining this conversation, we were looking for a couple of anchors, right? To think about how has 
masculinity in the culture changed and how have our own views of it changed and fight club became an obvious one because it was such an influential movie i didn't realize how poorly it did at the box office apparently i didn't know that either because i watched it opening weekend in new york when it was very successful and then it just like fell off a cliff I mean, 1999, right? It's only you realize this in retrospect, but The Matrix and Fight Club and these movies that were just like cultural cornerstones. Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh-huh. There's some great movies in 99. And Brad Pitt looked great in, in most of them. <laughs> still does. He's still he's, he's a good looking guy. And, the, you know, that's something that I want to touch on with Fight Club, because I do remember my female friends in 1999 saying, oh, my God, Brad Pitt and Fight Club is just the hottest ever. So let's tackle that. But so we rewatched it. And, and then we discovered a New Yorker article kind of making fun of men in the early 40s, rewatching Fight Club as a way to think about masculinity. Not rewatching. It made fun of men who were like super into it. So that, yeah. it's, it's a different. We just rewatched it. I'm not getting Fight Club tattoos, man. No, completely. But there was an opening paragraph where it's like, this is a way of men to think about masculinity in a way because I think that the what the movie projects can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Is it is it a celebration of toxic masculinity? Is it a critique of it? You can make a good case either way. What was it like for you to rewatch it? David Fincher is a really talented fucking guy. So a lot of what held my attention was just how good he is as a director and everything that revolved around that. The lighting, the set design, the sound design, the the soundtrack by the Dust Brothers, like all of that is just really well done. And frankly, I think elevates the movie far beyond where it really should be based on its content. That was one. Two, this is Brad Pitt at sort of peak, young, hot, cool Brad Pitt. So I think he embodied a lot of that. He was the icon, the symbol of masculinity for all of us growing up at that time. And there was a super kind of, he he embodied this kind of detached, somewhat mysterious, aloof, Mm -hmm. sort of silent, hit me again, I don't care type thing that was compelling even though you didn't want it to be. Completely. Prior to him, it was Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites, which was the whole slacker thing. And that kind of caught me way earlier as a 13, 14 year old. But getting back to Fight Club specifically, as I rewatched it, what I realized, this has considerably less depth to it than I thought or remember it as having. When I really dug into it, I realized that fundamentally, it's a movie about switching one type of instant gratification for another type of instant gratification. So you're replacing the instant gratification of consumerism for the instant gratification of violence. And it's wrapped in this idea of brotherhood and whatever. So once I realized that about 50 minutes into the movie, I was like, oh, this has, this is just, it, there's no depth to this. Not really. You know, oh, well, I had such a different reaction, such a different take, which is and great. So part of uh, it go might be that this was one of the first major movies to come out where I had read the book first. So like you said, the movie and the book is set up with corporate malaise, right? Consumerist malaise of like everything looks the same, everything is the same. And like you, I forgot this feeling in the late 1990s of, oh, every independent bookstore is going to close. Barnes and Noble and Borders are going to take over everything. No more independent cafes. Everything's going to be Starbucks. And suburbs, these cookie cutter developments were expanding. And it was like people were leaving the cities. So there was no scene anymore. And everything was just becoming corporatized in these in these shopping plazas. 
now that that consumerism has moved online and I think a lot of the independent retail stores have been able to come up because so much of the mainstream capitalism has has gone online. So now it's a little bit more interesting. But back then it was like, what is, how do you find meaning in life? And what I found so interesting rewatching the movie is that the first couple of scenes, the way so this guy has insomnia, right, that you and I have both had. And this is kind of a malaise. You're like, why can't I sleep? What's going on in the back of my head? Right? I just can't figure it out. And the way he's finally able to overcome his insomnia and get sleep is by going to self-help groups of people who are facing death, who have some sort of chronic disease. And he goes there and people are hugging each other and crying and he's able to finally cry. And as a result of being able to cry, he's able to fall asleep because he feels better, right? So there's, for me, it blew my mind that there's this juxtaposition of he finds comfort in crying, but then feels maybe a little bit uncomfortable about it as a man and ends up finding violence as another pathway. And so you've got a more acceptable one. Exactly, for men. So, you know, I, I can't do the crying every night, but here's a way that I can find meaning in life by getting beat up, hitting people. Like it, it feels like this is high stakes. So after Trump was elected, I was with you in Mexico City. I had this incredible, deep caveman urge to sign up for a boxing club. Like, I just felt this deep violence inside of me that someone like Trump, a bully like that, could be elected president of the United States. And I had so much aggression that I wanted to get it out in boxing. But I think what I also wanted to do was cry. And, you know, I, and my masculinity at this point, I still avoid crying pretty proactively. And so I wonder, like, when are men going to be allowed societally to cry as a way to process our emotions and malaise? And when are women going to be able to fight? Because I think that both things are probably human impulses. Aggression and sadness are just deep core emotions for all of us. I kind of hope that we stop gendering emotions for fuck's sake, because it's tremendously limiting for both sides. The violence in Fight Club is something that I remember viscerally connecting with when I was a kid and, uh, well, teenager, whatever, 19 year old. I remember walking out of the movie theater, walking along Columbus Circle with my buddy and really, really, really wanting to start beating the shit out of each other. Like it seemed like a fantastic idea. And we didn't and we, you know, like we went home or whatever. But one of the things that I realized after I finished watching Fight Club this time around was that I suddenly felt the urge to do stuff, to be proactive, to be productive. It was a very peculiar sensation that suddenly filled me with a sense of like, all right, let's get shit done. Pain is tremendously cathartic. When I ended up in the hospital with my herniated back, pain sharpens your focus. It changes your perspective in a way that's hard to describe if you've never been in intense pain. And I think it's the same thing for allowing yourself to connect with the emotional vulnerability of, of a breakdown, of opening up, of crying. And I think those are really valuable takeaways from Fight Club that are completely overshadowed by how cool it looks to see you know, Brad Pitt and Edward Norton beat the shit out of each other. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a link between our first inquiry and this inquiry, which is oh, of that, course. I mean, a lot of this is just looking back in time, right? But I think our, our Twitter usage developed haphazardly, not very intentionally, the platform evolved, society evolved. And then we got to this point of where we're questioning, wait a minute, how do we want to use this thing going forward? And I feel the same way about masculinity right now. Like, I just how do you want to use it? 
stumbling along and like I'm I'm a man, I identify as a man. I don't want to feel shameful about it. Sometimes I do, but what is a vision of masculinity that I can adopt or think about and, and feel good about? So one of the things I really want us to get into is looking at what masculinity can become. I feel like there's a lot of consensus right now, maybe not consensus, but a lot of discussion about what masculinity should not be, right? We're, we're coming to terms with the negative aspects of masculinity. Toxic. Toxic masculinity. And then also, I, I think just a real acceptance of this notion of patriarchy that used to seem like this radical feminist idea when now it's just like, yes, the world has been designed for men, institutions, products, culture, right? It's just the default has Medicine. been Medicine. Yes, everything has had a real male focus. And now that there's more awareness of that and that there's more women in leadership positions and managerial positions in studying in universities, we're not even close to gender equality in 99% of places, but it's headed in that direction. And so there are a couple of, of intertwining themes here that really interest me. One is like, how, how do we adapt to a world as it becomes more gender equal? And even some point in the future could be, have women could be more influential than men, right? And second, as that is happening societally, What's our vision for masculinity that feels positive? That's something that you can aspire to and feel good about and not feel shameful about. I did end up reading the Atlantic article that you sent on the miseducation of, of boys. Was that what mm -hmm. it was called? Yeah. And one of the things that I was really struck by was how much of what we allow ourselves is based on a sense of permission that we get from our environment, our peers, our, the adults in our lives, if you have siblings, siblings, what have you. And so I think back to this idea of how there was an attempt to celebrate masculinity in the 2000s through pretty much the mid-noughts up until Me Too where you had magazines like Maxim and FHM and even gamer magazines that were really focused on the whole idea of like bro culture and like bros and gadgets and who's the hottest chick, you know? And one of the special features on the Fight Club 10th anniversary Blu-ray was a clip of an event called the Guys Award that was done by Spike TV. And it actually ran for longer than I would have thought, almost 10 years, where they would do awards where they're like, the you know the the guyest guy and like the best guy movie and the best classic guy film and like you know the hottest girl in the world and the whole thing was just indicative of what i think was a very misguided attempt to give permission to celebrate dudeness and bro culture and maleness right so to answer the question of like the future i think that one of the main things is we need to reevaluate how we frame masculinity, traditional masculinity, aggressiveness, stoicism. One of the things that I found really kind of beautiful of the Atlantic article was this idea that the 19th century ideal of masculinity was more focused on kindness and this idea of being a caretaker, of taking care of your family. I think those things are 
masculine traits that are very positive. So I don't think masculinity is inherently toxic. And one of the things I've discovered in my own life and relationship is that when I do step up, which is also kind of a very masculine concept of stepping up and like taking care of business or taking care of things that need to be taken care of, the people in my life react positively because I think that there is a sense of like, you want someone who's going to say, I've got this, you know? And I don't think that's negative. The Will Smith slap, I think, was a good thing in that it opened up a conversation about how easily it is to misconstrue this sense of I have to take care of people, which is not a bad thing. Women often have to take care of people as well, but they frame it differently. It's framed in terms of motherhood, not in terms of I have to defend you from a horde of, you know, a comedian comedians. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I think we need to reevaluate masculinity, femininity, gender relations, the whole shebang. I feel like we are at the infancy of all of this. And we're talking about gender bending these days and how, you know, it's difficult to know what's male and what's female. I think it's going to get even weirder. I hope that it does. I think so much of the worst parts of masculinity for me were rooted in in insecurity. So when I think back about high school and college years, so much of the, oh, that's gay. Oh, you're such a pussy. All of that is is just this deep insecurity about, am I good enough? Do people accept me? And you know, if there's a concept of masculinity grounded in self-acceptance and confidence of who, who you are, and I think the same thing is true for for femininity. But I feel like we're at a place right now where so many of my friends who are men do feel shameful about being men, or at a minimum feel unmoored. Like, I don't know how to identify as a man, I don't know how to engage with women, and maybe are even sort of detaching themselves, not engaging with women as much as they would because they're a little bit fearful of how they'll be perceived. I feel like every boy growing up needs to be instructed in empathy, conversations, attention, collaboration, rather than having these norms of violence, aggression, and competition reinforced. And that would be a great thing for more women to grow up in sports, taking assertiveness classes, so that these societal norms that we grow up with, that the men need to be raising our hands and speaking the loudest and being the most assertive, and the women should be kind of like, you know, just collaborating quietly by themselves. I think we need to mix all of that up. A couple of things came to mind. One is, I think it'd be great if there was more gender mixing in school so that you learn from each other, as opposed to these bubbles that, you know, get created where you've got a bunch of young dudes in in a locker room or in a club or whatever, and they're just reinforcing the same tropes. At the same time, I, I go back to the Atlantic article that points out that the the little boys, like young toddlers, are really emotionally available. So I don't even think it's you have to teach. I think it's just giving permission to. As someone who self-identified more with feminine characteristics, I've had the benefit, I suppose, of as an adult, choose and decide these things that I rejected. Maybe there's a part of it that I want to re-embrace a little bit. You know, maybe I want to embrace assertiveness in leadership, whereas for a long time, my style was very collaborative. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in reevaluating, not as a good or bad, but as if these are all emotions, right, or versions of it, what do we do with them? You know, I think that this is going to be a long process. 
but a permission for there to be a wide spectrum of gender identities and a very generous exchange between genders in terms of how do we identify and how are we accepted. I think that sometimes there are a lot of men who are very lonely and have very few interactions with women and feel afraid to and so end up finding communities with just other men who also feel resentful or don't know how to engage with women. This is where I think it's really important again for us to have social institutions and programs in schools so that men and women really learn to engage with a wide variety of what it means to be male and female. Completely agree, buddy. Yeah. All right. Well, one other thing that I think is very important for men and masculinity is um, I, I think that friendships are super important and platonic love. I agree, man. Love and, yeah. And, you know, I love you, able, man. I love you, too. Just not something that men say. There you go. It's a hard we thing do for not. men to say. It's still a taboo. I mean, yeah. just saying right now, I love you, feels weird to me. Like, there's still, I still hear some teenage ghost from my past saying, you're so gay. And, but I do. <laughs> right. I, I love you. Yeah. I'm glad we have this project. And uh, we'll Likewise, keep going. man. Cool. There we go. All right. Thanks, everyone, for uh, hanging with us for this past hour and change, depending on how we edit it. Oh, bro, we got to edit this a lot. I'm just gonna stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding.